for April 22nd, 2007. This is episode 9 of Public Pig Weekly. Welcome to the place where the story never ends. Hey Ron, the next time you're freaked at me for calling you out on the Quidditch pitch. Just remember that. Welcome back to Polyfic Weekly, everybody. I am Ryan. And I'm Rinna. And Rinna has an important public service announcement. Everyone make sure to file your taxes. April 15th is coming up, so make sure that you get those taxes filed. Because Rinna, what happens if you don't file your taxes properly? Uh, then you get angry emails from the IRS. <laughs> Rinna, what's new? I tell you... <laughs> Yes, and they, they don't they don't say things nicely. They say, ha, you did something wrong, but then they don't tell you what it is that you did wrong, so you have to call them on the telephone, which takes five eternities. It's just not a pleasant experience, so make sure that you file your taxes and do it right. I have and no- may everyone in listener land get a big fat refund check. There you go. I felt so bad. I got this huge refund this year just because of the way my taxes worked out and my mother ended up having to pay like five hundred dollars oh my god <laughs> and she was so angry because she thought she was gonna get a refund i had to pay her taxes for her just to calm her down we got a refund a nice hefty refund this year but when my in-laws have to pay taxes my father-in-law is self-employed he doesn't have anything held out of his salary so when he pays taxes it's, it's a ginormous amount oh no of money <laughs> So. And she's laughing because she's like, the in-laws have to pay and I don't. No, it's not that. It's just my father-in-law takes care of making the money and my mother-in-law takes care of everything else about the money. And so she's the one that files the taxes and she's the one that writes the checks and balances the checkbook and all that kind of stuff. And so he never has any idea how much money they have. And so it's always really funny right around tax time because he finds out how much she has to send the government in taxes and he just goes ballistic. <laughs> it happens every sudden, single like, year. Every year. <laughs> like that. It gets around tax time and, and my father-in-law finds out he's wanting to know how much lunch money you're taking and stuff. It's really funny. You get kicks out of it, don't you? I do. I really do. Because, and, and, But it's mostly because my father-in-law is the most laid-back guy in the universe. And, I mean, just always so quiet. Half the time you think he's not listening. But just a very laid-back guy, except when he finds out how much they have to pay in taxes. And then all of a sudden he's like, what? You're going to the movies? How much is that going to cost me? (laughs) There was one day, this is back in, I think, early 2003. It was right when I first started dating Danielle. My mother charged into my bedroom and started screaming, Take all of your money out of the bank! Now! Because she heard from her friend who said, Take all your money out of the bank by Thursday, but wouldn't say why. And my mother was completely (laughs) believing that, you know, all the banks were going to (laughs) explode or something and we were going to be destitute. It was awful. (laughs) And I'm like, Ma, you met Danielle, right? You know, yeah, this is my crazy mother. So it worked out well. 
yeah. Well, you know what? It's good to get the crazy stuff out of the way first. Because then, you know, you know that your family can handle, or your girlfriend or your boyfriend can handle anything. Oh, if they have to deal with the crazy stuff right off the bat. Send your condolences you know? for dating me to uh, Danielle at PotherfickWeekly.com because she's had, right. to, she's had to put up with a lot. And I want to thank Danielle for right. jumping in uh, to co-host episode 8.5 she kind of jumped in on nowhere and did that and it was great i was actually listening to the recording of it and i heard three girls all giggling especially my girlfriend and all i can picture is they're talking about me they're talking about me then i realized i'm editing the episode so i didn't care as much but right exactly this is actually talking about well we were talking about finances and banks and stuff which is a nice segue into the start of chapter 30 hey bill's in a bank right bill's at a bank there we that was awesome that was well done i can't wait to see how you transition into dragon enclosures gold star for me i would anyway. give i would give five points to ravenclaw but you guys are walking away with it and i have to be somewhat defensive <laughs> Yeah, well, anyway. Okay, so we start our chapter, and we are with Bill. And he is not in a towel. He is in a dressing gown. But Bill is rarely in the towel. Charlie, towel, Charlie, Oh, that's right. At some point in, like, the... Yeah. At some point, like, the third paragraph or something, he does take off his pants and get in the shower, (laughs) which... Rena has it underlined and, like, bolded and italicized. <laughs> no, seriously. No, honestly, if I was going to have a crush on a Weasley brother, it would probably be Charlie. And you not think? because of the towel thing. I don't know. After don't the know. end, Ron seems to be getting pretty popular. Jen threatened to leave her husband for after the end, Ron. Wow. That's intense. Commitment, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, yeah, that's true. But at the same time, I'm quite a bit older than these gentlemen are in this particular story. And I, I believe that Charlie and I would be better suited. Okay. It's the towel, isn't it? It's not the towel. I think it's the dragons, you know. He's got that dangerous kind of... Anyway, Ron's a lawyer. That's not dangerous enough for him. Uh, well, lawyer, <laughs> and Can I just say this? Because I don't want to forget to mention it later. I love the point in these chapters where uh, Arthur mentions, you know, the fact that, you know, everything's coming together fine. You know, Sirius and, you know, Ron are, are, are you know, heading up the entire judicial system. And I stopped to think, I'm like, okay, how small is the wizarding world? That Sirius and his essentially like his intern are running the entire judicial system. That and they've also obviously taken a lot of very heavy casualties, so it works both ways. They're just in worse so, shape than I thought. Like you know what I mean? Like yeah. oh my god, they're it. Okay. I know it. So Bill is reading the Empathy and Sorcery book because he's trying to understand what's going on with Jenny, and I, and I love it how. He, uh, he he sees anything of the ordinary between Harry and Ginny. He won't be held responsible for any wayward exes. Well, I had to look that up because I forgot what was said in the last chapter. It's a scene where they're around the Weasley, uh, you know, Christmas table, and Harry looks at Ginny and says, "Am I hurting you?" Because she seemed very subdued at the time, and yeah. all Bill hears is, "You know, am I hurting you?" So Bill instantly, you know, Harry Potter must die. Right, right. He's the big brother. And, you know, and it cracks me up. I think it's great that they have that kind of family dynamic because 
as far as I know, my brother and our younger sister don't have that <laughs> dynamic. <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah. Because I've tried. I've tried to, to t- and, and get my brother to admit that he has those, oh, I'm the big brother, I've got to protect the little sister, but I, I really don't think he feels that way about our younger sister. I guess... <laughs> I guess he figures she can fend for herself. Yeah, Danielle's brother, he's this he's my age. He's a, about 6 months younger than me and literally I'm I'll po- I think I posted the picture somewhere on the forum. If not, I'll do it again. He's just a really he's a big guy. I really think I could like carry Danielle Fireman's lift like over my shoulder, you know, out the door and he would just sit there and be like later. Like he's just a very laid back guy. So, as I read these yeah. chapters, I think of the Weasleys and they don't do anything small. <laughs> they really don't. No, they really and don't. And it's like seriously, it's like it's not like mm, we're concerned over Harry and the relationship and it's progressing too fast. It's literally Harry Potter must die. Yeah. And I mean, and I really like it. I like the way you know, obviously from canon into this fanfic, I like the way that family is portrayed because it's you know, everybody wants to be a Weasley. You know, everybody wants to have Ginny for a best friend or marry one of the Weasley brothers or I mean everybody wants to be part of that family and it's good because you know they're contrasting what you would see as a, as a rich family because where you have the Malfoys where you don't really get that you don't get to see it but you would assume that it's a very cold very calculated environment to grow up in and you contrast that with the Weasleys and while the Malfoys have all the money the Weasleys have everything else and it's a good lesson, especially to reinforce to little kids. Yeah. You know, you don't have to be rich to have a wonderful life. You don't have to have a lot of money to have a great family who loves you and will do anything for you. It's very I inspiring, mean, yeah. It is. And it's, it's a good message to give to kids. What I really love about the message of the Weasley family is, have you ever seen the movie, uh, it's got Joan Allen and Jeff Bridges, uh, The Contender? Uh, vice presidential nominee this ring a bell? I think so. Yeah, well, for those of you who haven't uh, watched it, the plot line is essentially uh, the vice president has died and Jeff Bridges, who's the president of the United States, nominates uh, a female senator uh, played by Joan Allen to, to fill the position of, uh, of vice president. And uh, essentially the opposition party in Congress wants to completely destroy the nominee and completely destroy the president's reputation and they haul out all of this you know, nonsense and garbage and they try and throw everything at this woman she comes up with evidence to show that the allegations aren't true and there's a scene where she's sitting on the lawn of the White House with the president and the president holds up the you know the the evidence that exonerates her and says this is great you know you, you can give this to the press and you know everything will break your way and you'll get confirmed and everything will be fine and she says I refuse to comment on it it was not acceptable for them to ask these questions in the first place if I respond to their questions you know, even to exonerate myself, that will prove that it was all right for them to have been asked in the first place, and it wasn't. He said, so you're willing to stick by, you know, your principles, you know, even though, you know, it will cost you everything. He says, you know, principles only matter if you stick by them when they're inconvenient. And think of the Weasleys. Like, right now, you know, Arthur is the Minister of Magic. 
you know, they have a very stable family. They've lost one in their ranks, but everyone else is doing very well. Things are good. These are the golden years for the Weasley family. A few years ago, you know, Arthur was in a very lowly paid position. They didn't have any money. There was the constant threat of Voldemort. And when the Weasleys had the choice between staying silent and keeping themselves as pure blood safe or doing what was right, they did what was right and it paid off. And it really shows that if you're in a very desperate situation, you can achieve quote-unquote success by doing the right thing and if you stick by your principles and you stick by your morals and you and you and you do what is right you'll make it and i really like the fact that the weasleys made it because they're the weasleys and because they did the right thing and because they didn't compromise who they were yeah and i mean and it's, it's one of those things that so many kids today and I'm not saying this to be a bratty person that has no children and it's just harping on everyone who has misbehaving children but you know there is a culture of entitlement among young people today and they feel like they need to have everything handed to them on a platter in some cases and it's good to have role models in the Weasley family because these people do not have everything handed to them they have to work hard for everything they get but they do and they persevere and they win you know arthur's got the highest job in the ministry and he didn't do that by buying his way in he didn't do that because he whined and threw a fit until somebody said okay fine you can be the minister you know he was a steady person and he kept his head and he worked hard and he was rewarded for it and i think that's such a great message and the message towards it too is he doesn't define himself as the minister of magic and it's said many times in these chapters that you know one of his kids you know looks at him and realizes oh my god he's the minister of magic he's not just dad and i love that there's a scene in uh one of the later chapters where arthur is setting up you know the end of reconstruction and the return to normalcy for the ministry and he's setting up you know the privy elections and the election of minister of magic it may not be him and if it if it is that's okay if it's not that's okay too because he's not the minister of magic he's arthur weasley doing a job and you're right he's the minister of magic they still live in the borough and they still have the same lives that they had before. They probably have a little bit more money in the bank account, and they're probably paying off some bills. They've probably been sitting on for a while, but they're the same people as before. And he still comes home at the end of the day, and he still probably has to, you know, denome the garden and, you know, put the laundry away. And he, he's not treated any differently. This isn't like he's the president. Moving on a little bit in the story, we get to see the interaction between Mick and Bill about Vila. Yeah. Because obviously. Bill is thinking that Fleur has had him under a spell for all this time. And this is the first time that he finds out that, you know, Quarter Vila can't shapeshift. They can't do anything real crazy. They can't break love repellent or love charm repellent. They are normal. They have the charm that they can turn on and off. And if they get mad, they can sprout wings. But other than that, they're just as normal as can be. And so you get to know, finally he's starting to feel a little bit bad about the way that he's acted around her, which is good because he really was a jerk. He really was. <laughs> and you have to love just the confusion that Bill must be feeling in the scene too, because Mickey's explaining the Vila will either reproduce, you know, sexually or they will lay eggs. And, you know, what's the difference between, you know, the sexual reproduction and the laying of the eggs? Well, it depends if they're mating with a human or mating with a bird. And you can just picture Bill with a bunch of pamphlets in front of him. Like, hold on. What was that last part? Of the- <laughs> yeah. And 
if I were him, I would have missed the part about the Quartervilla not being able to overpower a love repellent because I'd be so concentrated on the fact that they reproduce they can with make birds. With birds. I have a whole new set of problems now. It's just... Exactly. <laughs> but to his credit... They want me to do what? But like to his... to climb a tree? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Continue. It's completely fine. <laughs> <laughs> Jules, can we please, 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 please... Have a one shot beast round. <laughs> About Bill having to climb a tree. And like slipping on the tree and falling down. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just even thought after the end couldn't get stranger. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> How do you know after the end, jump the shark? Flora has an affair with an eagle. <laughs> oh my god, it's the eagle from the ministry that brought, brought the Malfoy phone. Yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, good lord. And all, right. all of a sudden, Flora has a torrid affair with... <laughs> <laughs> Alright. Wow. <laughs> Moving right along, Bill Out feels like... Bill all feels right. like an ass, which, you know, demonstrates... Yes, which is so good. Should. It is good. The other thing, too, is you would think, you know, Fleur being accustomed to, you know, the propaganda about Vila would be used to people thinking that perhaps, you know, anything they feel for her is due to the fact that she's Vila. But you in that position don't usually go around thinking, you know, oh, I should explain to him that, you know, I'm really not using my powers on him. That's not how it works. You're yourself. And she was being, you know, relatively open with Bill and Bill jumped to conclusions just like everybody else has in her life except her father and you know she decided okay you're just like everyone else and she didn't want to put the effort in but what's interesting about their relationship is she did put the the effort in she never forgot him and well and i think i think part of the reason why she did take it so badly because i agree you think that someone who's used to this kind of prejudice wouldn't it wouldn't necessarily affect them as much as it did with her but I think the reason is because she really thought that Bill might be different. I mean, she really thought that he might be a guy like her father who could see past the Vila part and look at her as a woman. And the first thing he does is a major gaffe, and he proves that, no, he's just like everybody else, even though it was something that he didn't know. She wanted him to be different. And I think that's why she took it so hard. Not necessarily because she's not used to it, because obviously we know she has to be, but just because she wanted him to be different. And first impression, okay, he's a jackass just like everyone else. So I think that's why she took such offense to it with him specifically. And I think, too, it's, it's one of those moments where if you share a special time with someone, and it's one of those unique times, it's like a perfect storm that you know, two paths just collide and two people are connected forever. You never forget it. And no matter how much the person may disappoint you in the future, that bond is formed. I think the fact that she knows that Bill risked his life to personally deliver the news to Charlie that their younger brother had died and that she had been a part of that, even though Bill let her down many times, I don't think she could ever let go of that. I don't think she could ever... Right you know admit that he's a total jerk because she saw proof that he's a deeper individual and 
it's just one of those things where, like some of the other characters in this fic, they don't talk to each other, and because they don't talk to each other, right. they're just so... <laughs> like, oh my god, like... I was at work today, and two people were doing that. They were acting like Bill and Fleur, and they were just talking at each other. And at one point, I, I stood up and said, I want to bang your heads together. Here's the po-, And I laid it out for them, and it ended the thing. I'm like, no, I can't read after the end and have it in my real life. It just, it, it's not working. Genia, <laughs> <laughs> um, awesome. Arabella, your work is therapeutic and helps me in the workplace. Right. Keeps him from killing people. It keeps me from killing people. Uh, so Bill goes on to his meeting with his dad, and they're talking about the hair charm that Hermione and Delia had come up with about charming the kids' hair to keep track of them. And I love, I love the letter that Delia wrote to Mr. Weasley. Yeah, because you know it's just you can tell that this is a person who doesn't write letters very often. Because, you know, I mean, I take quilt parchment today to recommend to you. <laughs> I mean, even when you're writing a letter of recommendation, because I've written one before, but you're not going to write in quite such purple prose. It reminded me, you know, being in the United States, you know, there's the different cultural, you know, stereotypes of the regions. And, there, you know, there's areas of the country where, you know, people tend to be more snobby i think and try and impress with your you know superior vernacular it, it, it just seemed like like you just said she was writing in prose that we just don't use anymore yeah and and it could be she was trying to be like ho 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 i'm the thinker i kick ass so i I'm don't think like i this. never got that impression but i don't think Billia. that's what it was i think that it was just she doesn't correspond with people very often so she's just writing what comes naturally to her and it doesn't even occur to her that people would read this letter and be like say what now well you know what though i will say this i don't think i think she does correspond a lot with people because she did correspond with dumbledore she's been in touch with mcgonagall she's been in touch with you know the ministry because she's been giving them assistance all of this time you know during the, the voldemort you know era she was trying to come up with a solution on that I just get the sense that, you know, Delia, you know, resides on a plane a little bit different from ours. Number one, she's older. But number two, she's just, you know, out there just a bit. And she sees things just a little bit differently than we do. And I could see that maybe she talks a little bit differently. She writes a little bit old-fashioned and more formally. I don't know. One thing that jumped out at me, that. yeah. One thing that jumped out at me about the letter is that Delia has a last name, and considering we can't really pronounce her first name, I'm not even going to attempt the last name. Is it Cycaris? Cycaris, I think. Delia is Delia Cycaris. Delia is Greek. Apparently so. That was the only thing I got from that. You know, you're looking at the prose and you're analyzing the writing style. I'm like, ah, oh, Delia is Greek. <laughs> Well, everybody notices their own little quirks. <laughs> <laughs> it's shocking for me that she's on a Greek island and she's Greek. I don't know. <laughs> right. All right. Let's but. talk about the conversation uh, in the minister's office. You see a lot of uh, flashbacks to, I believe it was chapter three, uh, during the first meeting in Arthur's office. Sirius continues to be, you know, hellbent on finding a way to destroy the Dementors, which is the end game. The permanent Azkaban patrol, I don't think it's ever meant to be permanent. It's something where you're stretching resources as far as they'll go and hoping for the best. And you haven't seen 
you know, to this point, any emphasis placed on how do we destroy these things? We know how we're going to corral them and contain them, but there's no emphasis put on that. Sirius's, you know, motives haven't changed so far. It's not surprising they haven't. Ginny's, you know, letter to, you know, what was it? Ginny wrote the letter. Did she write it to Rose or did she write it to she Arthur? She wrote it to Rose. She yeah. wrote to Rose, yeah. not to Arthur, because yeah. she knew, as anyone reading in this story would know, that Rose is desperate and she's just Slytherin enough to use whatever tools she has necessary and she knows that her father is not going to jump at the chance to send his baby girl out to ride dragons. Well, Rose is so, impartial. She's very impartial. Mean, exactly. You can't have a conversation with your father and your protective older brothers and expect not to be treated like, you know, the baby in the family. Rose right. is literally a separate branch of government. She's the privy council and she is completely detached from the Weasley family. She's looking at this, you know, coldly and calculatingly, and I don't mean that in a malicious context. She's literally looking at the, just the facts, ma'am. And you have a situation where they're treading water and they're starting to lose ground. Not only are they not making any progress in destroying the Dementors, they're losing the ability to contain them. And they have a healer, you know, in their midst who has the ability to possibly help, you know, how could they consider not, you, you know, using her in some capacity? One thing right. that did interest me, though, a little bit, and it really wasn't touched upon in the fic, uh, to my knowledge. Maybe I missed a, a couple of lines here or there. You hear that being a healer is an amazing thing that, you know, the two recorded, you know, healers 50 years before, you know, were killed during a time of war. I don't get a lot of concern, you know, especially from the overprotective Weasleys, about keeping that somewhat confidential. I mean, obviously, you're going to tell, you know, True. you're going to tell, you know, the Lupin Lodge crowd and the Weasleys, and you're going to keep it somewhat, you know, confined to the family. You're not going to, you know, I, I, I didn't get the Shout impression it from the rooftops. Yeah, and it just seemed like you know she's writing a letter to you know the head politician in the country saying I'm a healer and I want to help. And granted. I couldn't see Ginny wanting to keep that a secret. I could see this as something that she's planning to use and wants to use. But you would have expected, you know, a little bit more debate about it. You don't get this, ooh, ah, impression that, you know, the wizarding populace is amazed that, you know, the minister's daughter is a healer. Or, you know, you'd think if you found someone, you know, the third healer in a century, you know, you think that would have been, you know, big news at the time. It, it just seems like, oh, look, Ginny's a healer, huh? Well, I think that that reaction is due to some very careful calculation on Jenny's part because she is tired of being treated like the baby. So that's why she goes to Rose because, because like I said, Rose is just slithering enough to know that here's an opportunity. We need to take advantage of it. It doesn't matter whose kid this is. This is something we need. Obviously, I think they're kind of setting it up. We know about Mick and Rose, and we know how close Mick and Charlie are, and you kind of get the feeling like they don't mind that Rose knows because she's kind of an extension of the family. And oh, I didn't get the impression it was confined just to Rose, though. I got the impression that Jenny was absolutely, totally making this public. And see, I don't think that's the case, and I think that's why she wrote to Rose personally and not to the Privy Council or not to the Ministry in general. She wrote it specifically to Rose. Well, I think... She, let me just debate you on this a little bit. I took it that she wrote to Rose because she knows that Rose is essentially, she's kind of like the Congress. She's the other branch of government so that if Arthur and his sons try and bottle this up and keep Ginny 
out of danger in you know playing with her dolls that Rose will make a huge stink about this and Rose will make it so uncomfortable you know for Arthur that Arthur will have to act you know you it's kind of like leaking a story to the press. You can't keep it quiet anymore because if you think about it, the way they get Ginny involved is they essentially get funding from the ministry. And I think there's even, you know, a line in there that Malfoy is, is paying for that. Malfoy is, you know, funding, you know, ministry operations. Malfoy is, you know, contributing because, you know, I'm, I'm assuming the ministry has a very diminished tax base and there he's, you know, funding all of this that, when you give it to Rose with her clipboard, you know, Rose is going to, you know, put this on charts and make, you know, collate copies and give it to the whole council. I mean, I just got the sense that Ginny was coming out. Rose has all of the qualities of Slytherin that could be construed as good. She's ambitious, but not to the point where she's going to blindly follow anything. Mm -hmm. And she's smart. She knows how valuable having a healer is. Yeah. You know, obviously this is an educated woman. She knows that healers are rare, that they will be sought after heavily in, in times of, of strife and conflict. And so I think Rose is the kind of person who would use that information to her advantage with within that small group. But knowing how valuable Jenny is, I don't think she would disclose it to anyone else. But Malfoy knows in these chapters, doesn't he? She shows up at Azkaban to work on the dragons and Malfoy knows she's a healer. Well, that's, I mean, that is true, but I'm just saying, I'm just saying, I don't, I don't think Rose would be the type to, you know, grab a bullhorn and shout it out in the lobby of the ministry. Well, I don't hey, think she guess would do, what? You no, know, she went to it for you most purposes, but she would do it for, you know, it would be down in her clipboard and she would, you know, give speeches on it, not to, you know, in any way embarrass Jenny, but I definitely think she would use the information, you know, officially, you know, the ministry now has access to a healer. And I don't, I don't see her using it, you know, to harm Ginny, but I also don't see her, you know, protecting Ginny's secret, nor do I see Ginny wanting to keep it a secret, nor do I see the Weasleys wanting Ginny to keep it a secret. I just thought that was interesting. I would have expected, you know, with all of the focus on, you know, the, the stubbornness and the overprotectiveness, I just would have thought that would have been mentioned, you know, in some capacity, but... And it also could be a reflection of the fact that they feel safe. They're yeah. safer. You know, there isn't big, bad Dark Lord looming on the horizon, and obviously, you know, with... You get the you get the impression, or at least I get the impression, that you have a good, you know, thirty years in between Dark Lords. That it's interesting you know? that they make that analysis, and I'm assuming, you know, you know, I'm assuming, you know, <laughs> that there was maybe like a Dark Wizard sixty years before Grindelwald. Otherwise, you know, that's really bad math. It's like, oh, you know, there was something terrible that happened in the forties, and something terrible happened in the nineties. So something must, you know be awful plan to happen in the 40s again like can you hear this i can hear that is that our third host <laughs> for the my, evening yes this is my dog he is trying valiantly to get my attention it worked and he was doing it by chewing on my fingers <laughs> and and now he's decided to do his little girly growly bark at me until i until I pay attention to him. Well, Jen couldn't make it to tonight's episode. She had the family thing she had to take care of. And actually, all of our uh, guest hosts were busy tonight, too. So we're, we're glad to welcome you to the podcast. We'll hook you up with the, with the headset. Right. <laughs> Bailey. <laughs> we'll, put our, we'll put Bailey up on the guest host page. I'll, I'll send you a picture, and you can put them up on the website. Email Bailey anyway. at uh, perfectweekly.com. But... Uh, <laughs> 
So I, I, uh, I really I like the way that Arthur reacts to the situation because he really knows that this is the situation is dire enough that his desire to protect his little girl cannot be outweighed by the good that she can potentially do. Yeah. Because you've got dangerous dragons and they are I mean they need to do something to fix this and Jenny is a person who has the ability to fix it so he can't just bury his head in the sand and pretend that she can't get involved because the war has changed that it has changed everything and and he can't have that luxury of thinking of her as a little girl anymore yeah, he has, and, to, yeah, he and has you, to let her do her job and when you look at the breakdown of the Weasleys too Arthur is and has always been the very level-headed guy who can see the big picture, who loves just as much as Molly does, but not in that overprotective emotions first, logic second way. Arthur's a realist, and he realizes the fact that Ginny was about to take the curse for Harry. She, he realizes the fact that Ginny and Ron and his children fought on the front lines of a war, and he is not dead set against the idea of Ginny participating and in fact Arthur was the one that sent the letter to Ginny inviting her to the ministry. You don't get the sense that Arthur puts up you know a valiant effort to stop Ginny from doing this. Charlie on the other hand I have to tell you I wanted to throttle during these chapters because <laughs> no like honestly ch- reading Charlie in these chapters was like reading Umbridge in Order of the Phoenix. It was like literally you just wanted to you know reach through the pages and you know reach through the computer screen because all of these other characters are flawed and they get that they're flawed you know bill wants to hex harry because he thinks something's up with with jenny and i love the fact that when he realizes that harry is going through you know a hellish period on the dragons and jenny is trying to help him but it is so hard and they're in this impossible situation he immediately feels guilty forever thinking poorly of harry and for completely misreading the situation he feels a pang of guilt just like the pang of guilt he felt when he realized he had underestimated fleur and ron you know in these chapters will completely fly off the handle but he'll get the fact that he's flying off the handle and Harry will be so angry and just want to hurt Ginny but he knows he's doing it and he knows it's weak Charlie just he just seems so one dimensionally stubborn and I don't mean that as a, as a crack against the character I love to hate him in these chapters because he is just so over the top in his overprotectiveness that you, you just want to you know I feel like Jules on the forum you know taking a bullet for Neville I just want to get up there and just protect Ginny because for all she's done he will not accept that and he will not lose that image of the little girl in pigtails you know probably playing with her dolls and i think that's one of the greatest themes from after the end is that and and harry i think at the end of this chapter really sums it up you know when jenny storms out of uh the notch you will sacrifice you will make decisions that poorly impact your own health and put other people first and people will try and stop you from doing it but you will continue to do it because it's the right thing to do and you see every one of the major characters on some level doing that and you want to just you know slap the characters who don't recognize you know how much these people are giving up and you know how much 
these people need you to get off their backs. But then when the when the roles shift, you're irritated at you know the other character for doing the same thing. I mean, it's it's just such good writing. I, I don't necessarily agree that the Charlie character is totally one dimensional in this. I mean, I can understand where he's going with this and and part of it is because i really think that the reason he has the trouble with seeing jenny as an adult is because for so much of this time he's been gone and you see bill act like that in regards to jenny and harry's relationship you know in that aspect he doesn't want to think of her as an adult and and charlie sees it in her professionally he doesn't want to think of her as an adult but it's because for you know Bill left for Hogwarts and Ginny was two years old, yeah. you know, and by the time she started school, Bill and Charlie were already off in their careers. They didn't see her fight. They didn't stand beside her, whereas Arthur did, you know, to an extent, Ron and the twins, they saw her fight and they are more willing to see her as an adult, which is why I think you see Charlie putting up the biggest fuss about her working with the dragons and that and while Mick got thrown that was kind of scary but Mick can take care of himself you know Charlie has not seen what Jenny can do has Bill seen what Jenny can do and see Bill is where it gets kind of tricky because we know that Bill was at the final battle Okay. and then the next time we see him he's in Romania with Charlie so you get the impression that yes he was at the final battle so it's possible that he has totally seen her in action and that's why he's a little bit more willing to say okay she can do this she can handle this but charlie has been gone the whole time let me clarify my point a little bit when i say that charlie is one-dimensional here with many of the characters you see that they are angry and then they take a breath and they feel bad about something they say no i know what you're saying yeah like i'm not saying you know the characters one but you don't get the sense Unless I'm, you know, sorely missing something here, that Charlie ever backs off from the, you know, fierce, angry overprotectiveness. But let me just say something else too. In the canon, when you see Charlie, especially up into the point of, you know, Goblet of the Fire, he's the happy-go-lucky dragon-hunting guy who, you know, is almost like a more uh, matured version of Fred and George, you know, in that fic. You know, Bill is described as, you know, the the more serious, you know, big older brother, and Charlie's kind of like the, his equal but a little bit more laid back. So when you think of how the character existed in the canon when Arabella and Genia and, you know, all of their betas, you know, helped to, to create after the end, what they did was they took, you know, the happy-go-lucky pre-war guy and they turned him into, you know, just the, you know, the, the, the angry, you know, post-war guy who lost a brother and is in this impossible situation and he's, you know, riding dragons every day and he's stressed and he's tired and now his baby sister wants to go into his turf where he knows how dangerous it is and he's just not having any of that so when you look at all how how all of the weasleys react some are resigned some are accepting some are concerned you know some are against it charlie i think is the extreme end of you know she is a child we will make her decisions for her which is frustrating for you because you as the reader and you know you know the other characters especially jenny know what she is capable of and it's just so frustrating to have someone you know who has no authority to do so try and make those decisions on her behalf right right and and i think that it's it's definitely something that everyone can agree with because everyone has (laughs) everyone's been 15 before (laughs) everyone's been a child have you been 15 (laughs) 
everyone has been a child at some point and knows what it's like to have everyone think that they know what's best for you. Yeah. And and yes, in a lot of cases, your parents and your elders do know what's best for you. But there are some instances where they can't see past their own, you know, like this with Charlie and Jenny. He can't see past his own view of his fear about losing her. He can't see past that to realize that she's an adult and she is fully capable of taking care of herself and you know, he doesn't need to worry the way he does. Let's talk about one of the themes that you see with a lot of characters in this, and this will come up to play in a little bit too and throughout these chapters. You see Harry decide, I'm going to become a dragon rider. And you see him make that decision because the world needs him, number one. Number two, because he's always been self-sacrificing. Why should I change now? And number three, because if I'm riding on a dragon, I really don't have to face anything else that's going on in my life. I can just put that off because I'm too busy riding dragons, which is also how Harry's pretty much been existing for the last seven years. So Harry makes that decision, and Ginny is completely pissed at him for it. She sends a howler to Charlie, and she threatens to, you know, swim over the Azkaban and ride dragons with him if that's what it takes, and she does not accept his reasoning, which... To be fair, neither do I. I think he made that decision almost to detract from everything else in his life. Now, Ginny makes his decision, well, I'm going to Azkaban. I'm going to, you know, take time away from my family, my friends, my studies, you know, being a 17-year-old myself, and I'm going to fly up to Azkaban and sit two feet from a dragon and see if I can figure out what's wrong with it. And no one wants her to do it. And these are the same people that made that same decision for themselves, but they can't accept that someone else makes it. And it's such an interesting counterweight when you look at all these characters. They're all making the same decisions, many of them for just reasons, and many of them for maybe not so just reasons, but they're all doing the same thing, but they can't relate to each other. And it's just one of the, I think, the strengths of, of the thick. It's just so complicated because when you think about it, you're, yeah, I'm on their side. And then they point out, you know, that point I just raised. And you're like, ooh, that's a good point. It's, it's like these are real people. These aren't one-dimensional characters, you know, poking at each other. These are people who are very layered and, and they come yeah. across as, is you know, very genuine. Moving on a little bit, we see Bill go home to the burrow and we get this great interaction between Bill and Mrs. Weasley and they're talking about Max. And I love it how, you know... Molly's in the chair. And what happened? Oh, he stunned me. I can't move. And, well, no, he only... He tried to stun her, but he only managed to make her leg fall asleep. (laughs) I'm really fine. I really, the thing that I I love about this part of the story is that, you know, know, Penelope's at work, Leo's upstairs asleep, and your father's at the ministry, and Max is out in the garden cooling off. And and Bill's first thought is, it's freezing, it's January, what are you doing? And and I, I love that, because he's just gone from this meeting when he's talking about Jenny, and he's had to relinquish his control over his baby sister, and then he goes home, and his mom is treating this 12-year-old kid this way, and so he's like, what? What are you doing? Oh, my God! And it's like, okay, Bill, you do realize your mother raised seven children to adulthood. I think she knows what she's doing. And she didn't kill any of you, so you... 
Exactly. And you have to love Molly Weasley too, because you picture Molly, and she's you know the, the little woman who kind of you know garners respect, you know, basically because she scares people more so than because she has any real type of you know power. She's not. You never get the sense she's a very powerful witch, but she's a very commanding presence. And you just have to love the fact that you know Mac has. You know, in the early stages, very little respect for Molly, if any, and she just completely <laughs> takes him on, and with the smile. And it's, it, I love that first line when she meets Max and he tells her to sod off, and she she interpreted that as if he had said, "Very well, thank you." And it's just <laughs> she she <laughs> yeah. she doesn't blink, and I love it. She's you know in the chair and her legs asleep, and she you probably has a big smile on her face reading a magazine, and you know Bill goes outside and Max is sitting outside and it's freezing outside, and he's you know, still radiating heat. And Bill says, you want to go, you know, do you know I'm the garden with me? And he's like, I can't, you know, the dragon lady sealed my bum to this bench. (laughs) (laughs) I love, (laughs) I love the interaction between Bill and Max, because I I guess the, the reason I think it's so funny is you get the impression or I got the impression from this conversation that Bill is used to talking to siblings who are that much younger than he is. And so, you know, he's used to just kind of not necessarily blowing them off, but, you know, being able to get them to talk because angry adolescents are not easy to crack. And so you just you get the idea that he's had a lot of experience with this with his six younger brothers and sisters and I just and I like the way that they're able to talk to each other and 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 Bill's reasoning for it is you know he couldn't do anything about Flora's sister yeah. but he can help this kid that's in front of him because he's the same age and, and I like the fact too if you yeah. think about who these characters are Bill is a curse breaker Bill gets puzzles put in front of him and he has to solve puzzles. That's his job. That's what he's good at. So enter stage mm-hmm. left, you know, this kid. We don't know who he is. We don't know what his name is. We don't know what his past is. And there's little clues spread, you know, that a good curse breaker could pick up on and try and, you know, pull the strings and solve the puzzle. And I just think that's right. an interesting dynamic. He's the big brother, like you said, so he has the experience, but also he's good at cracking, you know, tough eggs. He's that That's his profession. And I think that Max is definitely an interesting challenge. I just want to say this because I wasn't in the, the, uh, the previous podcast where you guys were talking about this. I really like Max as a character and I really like Max in this fic because this is a fic about the broken world rebuilding itself and he represents displacement and kind of like Penelope represents loss he represents all of like the debris that's all around he's the lost kid we don't know where he came from what do we do with him and I think yeah. this story is only strengthened by acknowledging and you know, getting some mileage out of those problems. I think if you know you didn't acknowledge the fact that there were war orphans, you you can't really expect us as the reader to believe there was really a war. So the more of these little touches they add, then I think it, it just makes the fix stronger. I I agree with that. We okay. we move on to uh, Hermione visiting her parents in St. Mungo's, and you know she whispers in her mom's ear that she and Ron are. You know, if mom can hear me, then she knows all about us. But I don't think I'll tell dad just yet. <laughs> you know, it's 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 the whole thing about, you know, the girl telling the 
father that okay she has a new boyfriend and I know from my experience my dad was a very intimidating person I mean he intimidated the hell out of me when I was a kid he was just he was a a very large man and that was part of it was just by size because my dad is 6'4 and he was a very you know largely built man mm-hmm. And I mean, he scared the hell out of me sometimes when I was a kid. And I have I have guy friends to this day that will not come over to my parents' house because they're still intimidated by my dad. And and these aren't you know guys I ever dated. And I, I have a lot of respect for some of the guys that I've dated for being able to, you know, go toe to toe with my dad and not just completely melt. Now, does he put on the act or is he very strict? He's not a, you know, my dad is a teddy bear. It's okay. it's hilarious because, you know, even I know that. I know he's such a sweet and caring man, but still, just by virtue of his size, he just looks so intimidating nice. <laughs> that it was hard for me, even as a kid, to reconcile my dad with the way that he looked. Well, it know? occurs to me now, I'm actually just thinking as you're saying this, it occurs to me that, you know, Hermione and, and Ron had made the decision, you know, that they're going to, you know, start having sex. So you know that's what she whispered <laughs> in her mother's ear. And I like the fact that she hasn't whispered it in her father's ear yet. And just the, all I can think of that, you know, is her thought is, hasn't he suffered enough? Like, the poor right, guy's, exactly. you know, comatose. We don't know if he's alive, you know, and I can't tell him I'm having sex, too. I just think that's too much for the poor Right, exactly. Well, and it's the same thing that, you know, you don't, a, a woman never wants to discuss anything remotely related to sex anywhere near her dad, even well after she's grown and married and all that kind of stuff. And and the, the joke was that it's always hard for a girl to tell her father that she's pregnant. Even if she's married. He'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah, I know, because that's the first time that you have to look your father in the eye and be like, Daddy, I had sex. You know? Maybe he'll think we were just reading up until this point. You never know. I know. Oh, you just you don't want to talk about sex in front of your dad. And so, you know, obviously Hermione's going to have that same reaction, even if her dad can't hear. You wonder you if Hermione's reaction... Your dad? You wonder if Hermione's reaction to it, she's like, you know what? I'll probably find a cure, and they'll wake up, and his first thing will be like, you're what? Yeah. Exactly. Oh, poor Hermione. And I feel so bad for her in the scene, too, because it's like she sees her parents, and, you know, they're stable, and she's gone to Cortona, and she's going to try and work on this. She's not hopeful, but she's going to try and work on this. And, you know, her parents are deteriorating before her eyes. And that's not something that we thought of before. You know, they could die. And she, you know, they may not live, you know, until a ripe old age. They're getting weaker and weaker and weaker. And she doesn't know what to do. They might not live... Right. They might not live long enough for her to help them. Which I don't think has really entered into the plot yet. I think before, I think she had all the time in the world, and, you know, I, I think she thought she could work on it. And when she looks at them, you know, she breaks down because she can barely recognize them anymore. And, yeah. they, you know, they go to the Snouts Fair, and they see Goldie. And after her brother beer, uh, you know, she decides to have a drink. <laughs> she decides to get drunk. <laughs> And I love the fact, too, that she competes with Ron. And she's oh, going... of course she does. She's going to pour just enough of, you know, 
Goldie's liquor curse, which Genia on one of her voicemails actually told us what it was. I don't know if I aired it. I'll go find it. Um, she told us exactly where they got uh, Goldie's liquor curse. But, you know, she has to drink just enough of it to completely, you know, outdo Ron. She can't spill, you know, she she wants to pour as much as he did without spilling it. And I love Ron's reaction to it in that she's, you know, he's like, well, Hermione, you have to wait and, you know, let it hit. You know, it hasn't hit you yet. You can't be drinking. Oh, okay, go ahead. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. And you just gradually see her lose control, lose control, lose control, lose control. And I just thought it was rather amusing. I think every good fanfic has the drunk chapter. And usually it's Harry drunk after a Quidditch match, if I'm not mistaken. I think we're pretty lucky here. Yeah, that's a pretty common one. Yeah, I don't think we've seen... I've never seen Hermione drunk before, so I think this is this is kind of new for me, but I think it definitely works here. It, it, it runs, you know, parallel to what Delia taught her. Sometimes you need a good cry. <laughs> Apparently sometimes you need to get hammered. Sometimes you need to get sloshed. Yeah. Every time I reread this fic and I get to this part with the little drinking competition, it very much reminds me. A couple of years ago, I went to Dallas with my brother and his girlfriend and my parents. And um, and my sister was there, and we were killing time before we had to go do something. And we decided to go play miniature golf. And we were playing, and I I have horrible hand-eye coordination, so I suck at miniature golf. <laughs> but my brother's girlfriend, as it turned out, was very good at, at playing miniature golf. So we're getting towards the end of the game, and my brother is getting so frustrated because he's losing to his girlfriend and he's just it's irritating him so much so she pulls me aside because i had the little scorecard and she looks at the score and she takes it and on the last hole she marked her scorecard out enough to where it made my brother win (laughs) because she knew he'd be really upset if he lost and it makes me think of that when I when I get to this scene here. Hermione is not the one who would ever throw something like a test or anything to make anyone else feel better, but and she always has to prove herself. And so in this she always I mean that reminds me of that instant, but you know, Hermione is my brother in that particular instance. He has to be the best at everything, even if other people have to cheat and make themselves look worse. Well, I think she has to prove herself. To be the best. I think she has to prove yeah. herself because she just essentially, in her eyes, failed at the first thing, you know, as far back as she can recall. So, you know, I, I just love the similarities. You know, if you can't, you know, if you've, you know, defeated the Dark Lord and you've, you know, not yet come up with a spell to, you know, cure comas, you know, at least I can, you know, outdrink my boyfriend. I mean. Right. Yeah. You know, I, you've just completed an impression, or you've just defeated the Dark Lord. What are you going to do? Well, I don't think Disneyland's going to cut it this time. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> you've got to do something better. Well, it's, it's also anyway. like the line, too, that um, Delia says to her at one point, saying, you know, with a shame that you know, you're so young and you've accomplished so much. And it reminds me almost of Dumbledore's line in Half-Blood Prince, you know, what a shame, you know, how you've, you know, mistreated your son, you know, referring to Dudley. And it reminds me of a, um, 
it reminds me of a scene. I think this is going to be the episode where we just quote all these movies. It reminds me of a scene um, in the West Wing where uh, Allison Janney's character plays the White House chief of staff, and she's out for dinner with um, a reporter who is her love interest on the show. And they're winding down to the end of the president's second term. He's going to be leaving office, and she doesn't know where she's going from here. She came to work you know at the white house by happenstance and she got promoted through the ranks and now she's this very powerful person where do you go from there and she has this great line that says i realize i'm she's probably 41 42 at this point i realize you know i'm i'm living through the first line of my eulogy right now it's like she's 41 42 and this is all i'm you know i'm always gonna be you know White House Chief of Staff, you know, C.J. Craig dies today at age 86. I mean, this is who I am. So, like, what the hell do I do now for the rest of my life? And it's like, okay, defeated the Dark Lord, and I'm 17. Do I sell used yeah. cars? Like, where do you go from there? And Exactly. And I just love that, you know, that aspect of, you know, Hermione's character in this. She doesn't know how to fix things, and she is probably she wondering... She doesn't know how to not be the person that yeah. fixes everything. And this is the first time that she's had to come to grips with the fact that she's not perfect. Yeah. All of their school years, any time anyone had a question, they went straight to Hermione. And now she's having to come to grips with the fact that maybe she doesn't know everything. And I mean, and, and when you're used to knowing everything, that can be a really hard revelation to come to that maybe you're not the best at everything in the world. And it's, it's a bit of a shock. And I think that's what she's dealing with here. Yeah, and I think that's definitely something that we need to see Hermione go through at some point, whether it be canon Hermione or after the end Hermione. Although, you know, like with most of these characters, I prefer after the end Hermione to, you know, where we have canon Hermione right now. But yeah, I mean, she isn't the infallible person who knows everything. She's a very flawed person and she has limitations and she has to, you know, try and surpass them and just see, you know, where the chips fall so you know she so she gets drunk and you know she's like i love drunk hermione she's like i like your hair you have seven freckles on your nose do you know that and ron kind of takes her back to the notch and i love the part where you know she you know kind of breaks down and you know doesn't know if she can fix these problems and you know she doesn't know if the world is going to get back to where it was before and they mentioned hogwarts and you know Hogwarts will be fine, you know, Hogwarts will be rebuilt, and she's happy about that because she wants their kids to go there. And Ron's like, oh, we're having kids? (laughs) Right. You've thought about this and you haven't been telling me. (laughs) Right, yeah. And in one of my favorite moments um, in the story so far, you, you don't get a sense, you know, of the trio much in this fic, you know, for the most part, it's Ron and Harry, or Ron and Hermione, or Harry and Ginny, or Ginny and Ron. This is a great trio moment. Hermione, of all people, is drunk, and Harry has a tape recorder. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And but, I, I mean, I, I honestly, honestly, how many people out there have not been in this position where someone is intoxicated and someone else has some sort of recording device? <laughs> It's it's been my misfortune in most of the cases where that recording device has a video and not audio components. <laughs> but you know, it's happened to everybody. It's <laughs> never happened drugs. to me. There is no recording of me out there. 
No, you know what? I, I bet, I bet somewhere out there, someone has a recording of you that you don't know about. If anyone has it and they're listening to the show, please email a copy to Ryan at parfictweekly.com and I'll start, you know, setting up <laughs> monthly payment plans. No, okay, there is a recording of me out there somewhere, completely blitzed out of my mind, chasing someone's cat with a burrito. <laughs> I chased down this person's cat and repeatedly threw a frozen burrito at it. Oh, the PETA people are going to hate you. I know it. I threw this burrito at the cat, and then I went and got it, and I said, okay, I'm going to put this in the burrito holder. Nobody say anything. And I put it a frozen burrito <laughs> inside of a sunglasses case and stuck it under the bed. I need to find footage of this. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, a month later, everybody was like, oh my god, what is that smell? <laughs> it was this burrito that I had thrown under the bed. Which you probably didn't even remember the, at this point. I had no clue what oh I had done. God. Until the footage showed up, and you're like, oh my god. Yes, exactly. And can I just say that there's one scene from Half-Blood Prince that if they don't put it in the movie, I'm going to cry. What is that? Dumbledore is at the Dursleys, and he offers them beverages, and the glasses bounce off of their heads. That has to be in the movie. That has to be in the movie. I mean, if it's not in the movie, it's going to completely ruin it for me. What just made you think of that? (laughs) Because you said something about Half-Blood Prince when Dumbledore says, I feel sorry for the way you raised your son. And and I was thinking about that, but I had other points to make. So I just now circle back around to it. But anyway, continuing on. We're making a left turn. (laughs) Right. And Harry's got a tape recorder. And so I love how the first thing they ask her about is Gilderoy Lockhart. (laughs) They ask her about Gilderoy Lockhart. They get her to admit that she was wrong on several occasions. Um... What else do they get her to do here? I can't recall. At the moment. I, well, I I love I love when you know Hermione's like, I want to stay with you all night, and then she starts laughing, and of course Ron's like, Oh crap! What did I do wrong? He's like, No, Harry charms his walls because I expect we're very loud. <laughs> and, <laughs> and can I just tell you Ron's like, first reaction it's just to that? Silent the silent bedchamber charm and Ron's first thought is they tested it <laughs> not that he would be making yeah. the bedchamber silent for them but that he'd be doing it for himself and Ginny that's exactly it I love his first reaction to the fact that you know <laughs> that, that Harry had to put this thing up around his room is he's using it for them I know he's using it for them yeah <laughs> and Oh, poor Ron. And they make Hermione tell them all of the girls that had crushes on them and all that. Padma yeah. liked Ron, though. How did that work? He's the worst date I, ever. I don't know. I don't know. Oh, man. But, and then, of course, she gets sick, so they call Ginny. <laughs> and Ginny has to tell them, you know, there's not a whole lot that empathic magic can do for you if you're just drunk. Ginny's a real bear in this scene. Did you did you pick up on that? She's not happy. I did, and and you know what? I completely sympathize because I have had to play party mom way too many times in my life. People 
and especially being that I have medical background, medical training, if anything happens to anybody at a party, they want to call. They don't want to take that person to the hospital because then there's if you're underage, you're going to get in trouble or blah, 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 blah. So they want to call somebody with medical training. So they won't take you to the hospital, but they have no qualms about calling up a friend at 4 o'clock in the freaking morning to ask... How do you know if something's bad enough that I need stitches? (laughs) (laughs) It's really irritating, and especially when it's somebody that's a friend or family member. Because then you feel responsible, and you feel like, okay, crap, I have to get out of bed and go over there and see what's wrong, and they don't care what I have to do tomorrow, and I have to take care of this drunk person, and oh, And so I can completely sympathize with Ginny in this case. I like the fact that when she slams the door, yeah, when she slams the door shut, she does it with wandless magic because she's. This is on par with blowing up, like Aunt Marge, or Marge or Marge blowing up Aunt Marge. This is like blowing up Aunt Marge. Like she's (laughs) (laughs) sorry. This is like. I, I mean, this is how angry she is. At some point, you're like. You know, really, she was she was the one who wanted to drink. I mean, this is, and Harry just popped in. And, I mean, it's not like he had anything to do with it. But they're so irritated, right. and I love the fact that she's you know in the in the bathroom with Hermione, probably you know doing the hand holding thing. And Ron and Harry kind of look at each other, and they're, they're like, "You think she'd mind if we turned on the Quidditch game?" <laughs> oh, I love that. Like, what freaking planet that. are you on that you think that could potentially be a good idea? <laughs> right. But, well, it's the same thing about you know. You read fanfics where one of the wives is in labor and the husband is listening to a Quidditch match or something. It's just, you know, these. you get the impression that when Arabella and Jenya were writing these stories, and even to an extent when J.K.R. was writing it, talking about some of these characters and their Quidditch obsessions, you know, you get the impression that they knew someone who was maybe radically obsessed with football or, you know, basketball or some other sport, that this actually something similar happened in real life to them. And so they're like, okay, I just have to put something in there like this. Yeah. And so it goes from bad to worse because not only is Ginny completely pissed off, Harry goes after her for wanting to work at Azkaban. And, and, and that is just not bode well because when Ginny is upset, you, you don't, tell her she can't do things. And, and and I love that Harry makes the connection. You know, Ginny was pissed off when I took this job. She's allowed to worry. She's allowed to tell me, no, don't do that. But when I say the same thing, I'm being a jerk. What's going on? Maybe I was just dim when I was reading this, but I really appreciated that writing because if you think of the scene, Harry just pops in. Hermione's already drunk and, you know, you know everything that Ginny's gone through earlier. So you feel kind of bad for Harry, you know, when Ginny, you know, just pops in and is screaming and, you know, slamming doors. And then you instantly go the other way. And then when Harry is like, don't do it, don't go, don't go, you just feel bad for Ginny and you sympathize with Ginny because you've been experiencing so much of this from her perspective. And then, you know, she, you know, storms out and throws, you know, the flu powder in, Lupin Lodge, she's gone. And then Harry's like, okay, it's okay for her to send a howler, but I can't express my concern. And then you're back in Harry's camp again. And it's what I was talking about before. These characters are so human that no one's right and no one's wrong. It's whoever you just happen to be hearing from now. Maybe I'm just indecisive, but I kept going back and forth. Right. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. 
And then I love so... it at the end. You think we can turn the Quidditch match back on? <laughs> She's yeah. Like Hermione's yeah. hugging the toilet in the other room, and they're like, "Yay!" Yeah. <laughs> but you know, it's okay because Hermione's asleep. So yeah, she'll never do that. It's okay. She'll, yeah, ne- she'll, she'll never, never know. she'll never know. She'll never know. So, chapter 31, Toil and Trouble. We start with Penny and Leo, and Penny has brought Leo to the office because he's not tired. Apparently, the worst thing world's daycare, you know, infrastructure was destroyed by the war. Right. And, I mean, and and it's, it's good because I have actually worked in places where people were encouraged to bring their children to work. Obviously, not at the hospital, right. but... When I worked, I worked at a university for a while, and, you know, it was encouraged. If you had a kid, you know, most of the tenured professors had offices that had, like, a main part and then a back area where they could do set up their research and things like that. And so if they wanted to bring in a playpen and stick it in their office somewhere, they could do that, and that was fine. Yeah. Which, I mean, I think that really helps out in a lot of ways because it lets parents get to have time with their children and I mean and obviously there are some careers like if you're a spot welder I don't think you want to bring your baby <laughs> <That's true. laughs> you know but it was good that they were able to do that and so Hermione comes in and, and she's explaining about her rough night the night before and, and Penny's trying to say you know it's okay if you want to go home and sleep it's okay and hiding the disappointment in her voice, you know, because <laughs> right, right. And so they start working, and you know, Hermione is, you know, the the quill is a crutch. I need to let my mind absorb the facts and not depend on relearning them. And I mean, and I think that's a really valid point because a lot of people do that. Yeah. And especially, you know, and when you're in school, that's a great technique because half of the time your professors are lecturing so fast that you can't keep up with them. It's all you can do to write down everything they're saying and then you go home and teach it to yourself later. But when you get out into real world situations, you know, you don't always have time to take notes. You have to be able to listen and pick out the useful bits. Well, it's interesting for me because uh, in graduate school, most of my professors will give the notes as uh, PowerPoint slides and they'll either email them to us or give us, you know, printouts of them so there's no need to take notes so i'm i'm kind of like hermione in that i use like the note taking as a crutch and now i have the notes given to me i don't know i feel like i should keep writing them down anyway like i don't know what yeah. to do because i have all the notes and i'm like okay what, what do i write it, it's it's just interesting for me because it's like i've been trained the same way she has and i, I love how you know, they have Hermione working on this, who is a muggle-born. And we know from, or not know, but we can assume from Chamber of Secrets that Penny is muggle-born as well. Yeah, we get and, that from uh, the last chapter. Her parents are actually uh, extremely religious, and they saw the magical community as a cult. And when she was petrified by the basilisk, Percy would write to her parents, and they wouldn't respond. So she is muggle-born, and she's uh, estranged from... Uh, from her family, her, from her muggle parents. Well, I was talking about from I was specifically oh, I'm okay. talking about from canon. You know, we know because they don't really discuss her parentage in canon anywhere. But they barely discuss Penny in canon. <laughs> yeah, 
So, but from the fact that she was petrified by the basilisk, you know, the basilisk was set loose to go after Muggleborn. Mm-hmm. And since she was one of the petrified students, you can uh, therefore assume that she is Muggleborn. And we know from the previous chapter that, in fact, she was. And I love how they are talking about it in the concept of Muggle prison systems. And they're talking about, you know, how, how you know, what, what do they have to deter criminals in the Muggle world? Well, they have iron bars and locks and guards. They have alarms. They have barbed wire fences. They have high-powered shotguns, you know? Yeah. What, what do they have to keep people in? Okay, well, how do we create that layer as well? Yeah, and it's an inter- it Let me just start again. It is interesting in the way they go about setting the scene up because you have Penny, who's been working on this for over a year, uh, especially with Percy, and she has looked at the same material so much that, for all she knows, she missed something very important and very basic, and you know never caught it because she's so used to looking at the same material over and over and over i find it interesting too that at this point they haven't brought in other people to look it over i know hermione is there for that purpose but i just find it odd that in all of this time they didn't bring in at least one other person to just you know double check her work or look at it maybe she's just you know so far above everyone else you know in this field that um maybe that just wasn't possible but i just did want to comment on that and the other thing is i like how the situation is made to be one where you have to look outside the box. You know, how do the muggles do it? Is there something so simple that, you know, we're looking at these great big, you know, powerful imprisonment charms. Maybe we just need something very simple that will do, you know, the same job and actually, you know, confuse the wizards that we're trying to, you know, keep out of the prison. And, you know, the other thing is, okay, you would expect to, okay, here's the door, let's find a way to block the door off. What if you find a spell that instead of, you know, sealing and defending, you know, the exits and the means of egress, we find a spell that literally, like, duct tapes the guy to the wall so he can't leave the prison, and then, you know, chains, you know, the prisoner to the prison, as opposed to, you know, blocking, you know, the prison off from the outside world. I thought that was interesting as well. So, Hermione starts going over all of Penny's charts, and Penny, you know... (laughs) Random side note, this always... I had a doll named Penelope when I was a little kid. Oh. <laughs> That's what I think of whenever I read this. My my Penelope, she was a Cabbage Patch doll. <laughs> I had a Cabbage Patch so doll I to... when I was like four years old or however old you were when you had Cabbage Patch dolls and it got stolen out of my father's car because he left the window down. I didn't talk to him for like three days. <laughs> oh, Yeah. Yeah, my brother had a Cabbage Patch doll when he was little named Ball Baby, mm-hmm. and we moved, and Ball Baby got lost somewhere in the move, and he didn't sleep for two days, oh. because he was so upset that Ball Baby was missing. But no, I had a Cabbage Patch doll that was named Penelope, and so I keep thinking of Penny. Now, was Penny actually... Like a Cabbage Patch doll. Did they ever call her Penny in canon? They didn't. That's That's exclusively fan. Yes, Percy did. Did he? When, okay. Yes, when they bet at the World Cup. They bet at the Quidditch World Cup or something. They, I, I guess it was the Quidditch World Cup. Or maybe it was something else. A Quidditch match, maybe, but they bet on something. I have to read these and books again. they bet a sickle or a galleon or something, and they win. And whoever Percy bet on wins. And so he says, Ho Penny, you owe me a, a dollar or something. Okay. <laughs> or whatever. But he does call that. He does say that once. But, okay, good. So, 
So Hermione's going over Penny's charts, and Penny is nervous because she thinks that they're probably going to be terrible and nobody's going to be able to understand them and it's going to be bad and she's going to be embarrassed and then Hermione's like hey, these are really awesome. You know, you, you hit the nail on the head here. We need to figure out the other stuff, but you know, you're in the right direction and you are really working. I mean, you've got a lot of good stuff. Yeah. And, you know, and Penny, you see her and she laughs. She's so excited because you know, this was her and Percy's project, and she's been working on it so hard, and she keeps, you know, she doesn't have a lot of confidence in herself, and... and She's here, doing finally, this in his knows, name, too. She's yeah. doing this almost in Percy's name. You know, this is the last thing that we were doing together. This is something he started, and I feel obligated to finish it. So, you know, like Hermione has to fix her parents, and, you know, all these other characters, you know, have a personal stake in accomplishing something. You know, Sirius has to, you know, get rid of Azkaban and the Dementors. So for all the other people out there like him, this is very personal for Penny and Hermione just basically said that you're going to do this. And it's, you, you, you can't understate that enough that this is a big deal. Yeah. And, and, you know, and then Penny starts talking about moving to Diagon Alley and it's something that Molly is keep keeps conveniently forgetting oh man about. what a guilt trip do you want to decorate you know Leo's room a different color <laughs> like a week before the move yeah. out oh my yeah. god Molly doesn't do and, anything small <laughs> oh none of them do but I mean and I really I I like her reasons for wanting to move it's not okay I don't want to live here anymore I can't stand it but it's Percy wouldn't have wanted to live here you know Percy want, needed his own place, and, and now I do too. He wouldn't want me to live here like this forever. And look at the way that Penny describes history, because it's so interesting when you read any type of literature. Bad guys never see themselves as evil. They, they have their own personal motivations. And no one's always good, no one's always bad. There's always perspective. Everyone's good, everyone's bad. And from the perspective that Joe Rowling gave us, Fred and George are the practical jokesters, and Percy is the stick in the mud, and he is the one who betrayed his family and betrayed Harry. How do we know that? He wrote the letter to Ron and Goblet of the Fire that disparaged Harry. And, you know, he's the one that, you know, made Molly cry. There's many different things, you know, that, that Percy's done. And I love, from Penny's perspective it's completely the other way around and you know Percy wouldn't have wanted to live there after all you know his brothers did to him <laughs> and it's you know completely you know the other way because we think of all the things that Percy did you know to them and it's, it, I just love that little you know reversal there because that's everything that's how Penny was introduced to the Weasleys yeah and so we you we, say yeah a lot <laughs> like yeah, yeah. Well, I don't want you to feel like you're talking to yourself. Okay. It's t it's a trick of being a good listener. You have to say things that make the person who's speaking realize that you are actually paying attention to what they're saying. Okay, new rule. Instead of saying, yeah, you say the following. <laughs> All right, moving on. Okay. So oh, oh, I'm sorry. We, before, you, before we move on, can I just say one other thing? Stop laughing. Okay. Can we say one other thing? Does it seem a little... Maybe this is just the writing style. Okay. It's your first day on the job. You've just gone to this very intense training program for four months. 
and you're tasked with rebuilding the Department of Correction, essentially, of the Wizarding World. Because, you know, your you, you, your boyfriend and your, your, your buddy's godfather, they're heading up the, uh, you know, the justice system. And you and uh, your boyfriend's, you know, sister-in-law are heading up the correction system. And you're, you're charged with a monumental task. And you get there, it's your first day in the job, you're a little nervous, you're a little hungover. And you work for a brisk, you know what, 20 minutes, and let's break for the day. I found that a little interesting. It's like, well, that's enough work for one day. I'm like, didn't you just get there <laughs> like 10 minutes ago? Yeah. And she, she looked over a few pieces of paper. Great job. This is going to be wonderful. You know, let's take the morning off. It's like, what? We would have Hermione and Penny on a, on a positive note. They think that they made progress. You know, this is the first time that Penny has had any kind of definite yes, this is good, this is heading in the right direction. So yeah. we leave that situation and we move into the big nasty situation, which is Ginny going out to the dragon camp. And she meets with Charlie and, and they're traveling out to the camp and you know they're, they're having a little bit of interaction. And, and Ginny, this is where he finally, you know, Ginny is supposed to come out and heal these dragons, but she does not know anything about them. Yeah, you know, she's asking them questions like, "Wait, can dragons get cold, or do they get head colds? You know, do they have sore throats? You know, <laughs> it's kind of like, which strikes me as odd because you wouldn't want, you know, to take your dog to a veterinarian who had never worked on a dog before. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you want someone that has at least some kind of background." And obviously, Jenny is a special case, and yada yada yada. But still, I just think it's funny that she has no idea what she's getting herself into. Well, it's Charlie too. And it's like what you were saying back in chapter six. Charlie, you, you know, really wants to. Okay, let me put it this way: if Charlie drove a car, it would have a bumper sticker on you know the rear of said car, and that bumper sticker would say "Dragons are people too." And right. he probably gets you know if if Charlie had the blog and he had the frequently asked questions page in that blog, you know frequently asked questions about dragons and it, it's the questions he probably gets over and over and over, which basically are dragons are real, you know like you know dragons you know get sad and and and, and they cry and they laugh. It's just yes, dragons get colds and they also eat and they also mate and they also, you can tell it's just the questions that Charlie gets really irritated. He has to answer over and over so the day shift comes back mm -hmm. and you know this is when Ginny's gonna finally get her hands on the well not hands but get to interact with the actual dragons and she's she's asking Mick about it and you know we're finding out that the fireball is feeling it the least and the ridgeback is getting it the worst and you know obviously we know that Harry's the one on the ridgeback Ginny, no. yeah, and Ginny arrives, and she and Charlie, you know, ride from Arthur's office. We talked about that a little bit earlier, and you know, Charlie doesn't think this is a good idea, and Arthur kind of diplomatically appeals to him to, you know, watch over Ginny, which you know puts Charlie in more of a comfortable, familiar role, and they get to Azkaban, and you can instantly see how this is going to go. Charlie's explaining to her, okay, these are your gloves. And you, you get the sense that this is his seven-year-old sister about to go out there. Because obviously she's never dressed herself before. And, you know, she, she you know, dresses up and she gets all flame retardant. And 
Harry comes in for a landing and like literally almost dies like four times. Like Norbert is uncontrollable and you know, he's agitated and Harry is, you know, diving off Norbert and he's you know diving out of the way before he gets taken out, you know, he almost loses his head to Norbert and you instantly get the sense that this is just a very dangerous, awful situation. Now, you know, if if this were, you know, the United States, I, I do not think that, you know, OSHA would let them get away with having Ginny on the job site. But of course this is, right. you know, the Wizarding community and, you know, I'm sure one of, you know, Arthur's other children, I'm sure, you know, George is the head of OSHA, so, you know, I'm sure they've waived that role. So right. it's fair to mention that, you know, this is probably not the best environment to have Ginny in, so anyone's you know, protection instincts that may kick in, you know, are are, are somewhat warranted. That said, I I really think I side with Ginny in the scene because no one will take her up on the broom. And you wonder how much easier the scene would have gone if Charlie made that offer originally and how this fic would have gone differently if she wasn't thrust together with Draco at such an early point. Right. Do you side with I think that, well, it's kind of getting... A, a little ahead and then I'll kind of backtrack you know Ginny's like alright well I'll go work on the dragon go ahead and stun him and Charlie's like we can't stun them they can't you can't stun any of them you'll have to stand outside of the enclosure and I think that right there is the kind of the crux of the matter I don't think Ginny realized until this point I, in fact we know she didn't because obviously she was shocked at this she did not know she was going to be dealing with dragons conscious awake dangerous dragons yeah she always assumed that she would be dealing with a dragon who had been stunned or otherwise contained and and i think that is a big reason why she was so stubborn about wanting to get to this point and you know she fought everyone so hard about it because everyone else realized she would be working with a real live fire fire breathing fully conscious dragon and she's the only one who was laboring under this delusion that she would be working with an unconscious dragon and it's another example of this miscommunication if they had talked about this to begin with she would have known going in okay the reason that we're freaked out about this is because we know that you are going to be face to face with a you know conscious dragon and not running your hands over a stunned one great missing line here jenny oh that's why you've been an ass all this time okay now i get it Right, exactly. And Do you think it's you know, odd that it. Secretary Brown didn't have a pamphlet made up for this situation? Here's what you can expect at <laughs> Dragon Camp. Right. She when they shoot the fire at you, remember to duck to the left. And so Ginny figured she'd be up close and personal with Stun Dragon, and everyone else thought that she would be safe on the ground far away from a non-stunned dragon. And so now it comes to the point she has to be up close and personal with a conscious dragon and charlie and harry say no we're not going to do this and malfoy comes up and says i need to be able to get close and and harry won't do it and charlie won't do it and malfoy says okay fine get on and harry's like don't even try it don't even do this and jenny's like look stop i came here to do a job i came here to be a professional i'm going to do this and so she has to deal with malfoy and she puts herself in that position because she's here to do a job and she has to be professional about it. And Malfoy tries to be a jerk about it, you know? Yeah, I and, mean... And Jenny finally says, you know, look, this doesn't have anything to do with the fact that Harry is riding Norbert. I can't tell what's wrong with the dragons if I can't 
do the worst one first. I need to get a feel of the one that's in the worst condition. That is Norbert. I can't help the fact that you're on the healthy dragon and that mm-hmm. your dragon is less affected by this. I need to go to the one who's worse. Yeah, and I said this before this evening's. You know, these characters are very real. You can, you know, on the surface see where everyone is coming from. You know, Charlie believes it was a misinterpretation. He's not putting, you know, Ginny in that perspective. Charlie is also seeing Ginny as his little sister. Absolutely. He is not being by any means impartial. Harry is being fiercely overprotective of Ginny. He's not allowing it either. You know, Draco, on the surface, appears to be cooperative. So fine, I'll go with Draco. Draco is also being, you know, just this totally sleazy human being. To Ginny, you know, he's got his arms all over her. He's not doing what she's asking. He's refusing to take her down. While at the same time, he's, you know, not putting her into danger. And he's also begrudgingly doing everything that she's asking for. So it's an uncomfortable situation, but it's a tolerable one. Until Harry charges up and says, put her on the ground. And... At this point, you kind of want to slap Harry, because although it's uncomfortable for Ginny, things are fine. Stop butting in. And what yeah. I like about it is you know where... I mean, if you were Harry, and, you know, the the murderous guy who's made your life a living hell who you hate, you know, rationally or not, has your girlfriend up in a broom, and she looks like she's in trouble, I'm going up there. I don't care. He's said it many different times, and Ron said it many different times. If he walks next to me, I'm going to kill him, and I mean it. Yeah. So y- you know where these characters are coming from. And obviously we're not going to foreshadow here, but I like the way that Draco was described as so calm on the dragon. The, all he has to do is wave his hand, and the dragon is calm. And this is something that gives Harry a lot of pause in this chapter. He can't do it as well as Draco can. And it kills him to say that, but Draco's better at this. At least on the surface. Yeah. And Yeah. And, of course, this is, again, you know, like I've, I've said before... Draco's up to something. <laughs> Jen charges back into the Powerfic Weekly studio. He's really misunderstood. Right. Which is in Jen's and, opinion. And I don't want to, you know, make Jen get all upset at us. I mean, I, I can see right. the fact that, you know, look at Max in these chapters. Max starts off as an absolute, you know, jerk to Molly. And at some point he comes around and you start to like him. You know, it's... right. But at the same time, Max is still only 12. Yeah. And, you know, there's that point. It's the whole age of accountability issue. When you're a little kid and you've been traumatized, you know, it gets to the point where, you know, you're, you're kind of almost brainwashed. But, you know, you can still be influenced for the better. By the time this story is happening, it's past the point of no return when it comes to Malfoy. And just to me, the fact that he was able to control Norbert with his hand, I'm like, okay, dude is up to something. Yeah. And, and... But it's not, you know, in in later chapters that we're going to get to, it's something which is, even though, you know, in later chapters that we're going to get to, even though you don't sympathize with Draco, you have to pity him. And even though he is not a character that you may like, he is a character that is realized. You, you, you can get in there and you can understand Draco and you can understand where he comes from because he's a very deep character and he's by no means you know the one-dimensional jerk that sometimes you tend to get in the novels. I think they do a really good job, especially in Chapter 33, of explaining Draco and giving us more insight into him. And I, to be honest, I'm not going to, you know, repeat this again, because I think we've done this, uh, like, three episodes out of four. But, you know, Draco is a character that I could see redeemed 
but you have to have very extenuating circumstances for it, and I just don't see it at this point. But we shall yeah. see. We're only on chapter 31. You never know what's going to happen. And so, you know, then we, we close the chapter, really, with this big argument between the Weasleys and Draco about yeah. what has happened out at the dragon camp. And... It's a great you know, scene and, and, with the secretary privy, and you've got Arthur, and Arthur, you can tell, you know, wants to jump over his desk and, you know, charge into the situation and protect his baby girl and be the dad, but he's also the minister. And you have Rose there, who, like herself, is, you know, secretary privy, and she has her little clipboard, and she's jotting down everything everyone's saying. And from my own perspective, being irritated with Harry in the scene, and especially Charlie, you know, I... I'm one of those people, I'm very diplomatic, and I try and always resolve situations, even when I'm, you know, hot-headed and emotional, and Charlie makes no effort to, you know, resolve things with Ginny, or to any any way, you know, figure out where Ginny's coming from, and I, I do like the fact that, you know, Harry triggers the situation to collapse, and, you know, Ginny, you know, feels as though she can't get off the broom, and finally Harry has to rescue her, you know, quote-unquote from Malfoy, because she, you know, elbows him in the gut and jumps off the broom onto Harry's, and this is the situation that never had to go this way. If Charlie took her up, you know, the dragon probably would have gone then, you know, wild and crazy anyway, but at least it would have been it would have been Charlie there. Whereas, now you have a situation where because Harry was so overprotective, and because Harry was so hot-headed, you know, she couldn't stay in the air because then Draco was trying to piss him off. And it was just, you know, just snowballing situation based on the way, you know, the guys handled it. But I do like the fact that in the changing room, Harry admits, I should have taken you. And Ginny is so pissed at him that she wants to be so angry at Harry for just completely, completely, completely underestimating her and not giving her enough credit after everything she's done but he admitted that he was wrong and, and she has to at least give him that. I think that, you know, and, and I, I, I really enjoy how, <laughs> I really enjoy how Harry and, and, and in a way, Charlie, everyone feels justified by their actions here. And it's, and it's, it's only really when you hear what Ginny is telling Privy, Secretary Privy Rose K. Brown that you realize that everyone is kind of skewing this whole situation in their own way. Yeah. You know, Harry, Jenny didn't want to come down, but she had to come down because Norbert was attacking. And why was Norbert attacking? You know, you know because, well, no, why, you know, just to say it again, you know, you know, Jenny had to come down because, you, you know, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Why, yeah, why was Norbert attacking? Because Harry was there. Why was Harry there? Because he had to get Ginny onto the ground. Why did he have to get Ginny onto the ground? Because Harry doesn't like Draco Malfoy. And I love the fact that Rose was like, well, why? Well, why? Well, why? And she breaks it down to the basic argument that, you know, Harry, you know, detests Draco and will never trust him. And it's about feuds and it's about history and it's about war and it's about all of these different things and to Rose it's about well we hired her to do a job why are you interfering in that and she keeps it very focused and very official and very mechanical which is what you need if you're dealing with overprotective Weasley brothers and Harry and I one yeah. thing I did really really like about this scene is you have you know 
Ginny, you know, pissed at Harry in the changing room, and Harry admits he screwed up, and Ginny can't be that angry, and then, as much as it kills her, and then, you know, Harry apparates to Arthur's office, and I love the little appearance from Lawrence, you know, we almost got the chapter from Lawrence's perspective doing his filing, but, you know, not so lucky, and, you know, Harry goes in, and they have the whole scene, and then Ginny shows up, and Ginny's like, well, it's raining out, and she, you know, cleans herself up, and all this stuff, and she's very much you know, colder to Harry than she was before she left. And I thought that was a great scene because you have, because how often does this happen in your life? It certainly happens in mine. Something bad happens and you know, you're like, okay, we're going to be rational about this. We're going to be calm. And then you get in your car and you drive for like 20 minutes somewhere. And by the time you get out of your car, you have, you worked yourself into a frenzy that you'll get out of the car and like walk up and like kick a fire hydrant. And you know, she's uh, in yeah. Yeah, I, I can imagine you've done that. Because she's been flying for 15 minutes, and she's probably on the broom going, oh, freaking Harry Potter, you know, you, yeah, you'll go to Azkaban, but I can't go to Azkaban. And you know, she'll talk herself into, you know, I'm surprised she didn't, like, walk in the room, walk up, and just, like, deck Harry. I would have, man. I was pissed off for her. Yeah. But, you know, and, and they finally kind of have to realize that, especially when Rose kind of takes over, and this is another example of where I think Ginny and in this case Draco were really playing off of Rose's desire to keep things ordered you know she has to have something she can tick off on her clipboard so okay this is what we're going to do Malfoy is going to fly with Ginny and you're going to have to find someone to replace him and this is how it's going to be All right, that's said and done let's go do something else you know she has to be very organized about it and you know and no one else can understand that Ginny's saying you know I can handle this she opened herself up to his energy and she didn't he didn't have any immediate desire to see her harmed and you know as long as that's as she knows that he's not out to get her right now that's okay with her yeah because it lets her do her job and in this case she's being a lot more professional than the other guys because you know she knows what has to be done and she's going to do it and she's going to get it done and it's going to be fine and she's going to take care of it and everyone else is just going to have to deal with it yeah, I think that's that that's that's very well put. And when you look at all of these characters, when you look at Hermione, when you look at Sirius, when you look at Ginny, they're all coming out of a wartime situation, not really knowing who they are, and they need to find themselves. Sirius is gonna be the guy that makes sure that he's the last one to be wrongly accused. And Ginny is the person who's always been, you know, either Harry Potter's, you know, love struck you know, stalker you know, or, you know, you you know, the Weasley, you know, little girl who has, you know, a bajillion older brothers. This is something that's all her own. She is a healer and she is one of the only healers in the world, you know, possibly the only healer at this time. She's tremendously important. This is something that's hers, something that no one else can do. And everyone needs that. Everyone needs that little part. Like, for everyone listening to this podcast who's involved in fan fiction, that's your little thing. I'm sure you're, you know, like an investment banker by day and you write fan fiction under an assumed name by night. That's what you do. That's your little escape. This is Ginny's own thing. And every time she tries to go out there and say, I am not your younger sister, I am your employee, I am your coworker, I am a, you know, a very, you know, powerful person, not from the sense that you will respect me, I'm better than you, but from the sense of I have earned the right to be heard she has people swathing her down saying you're a little kid you can't do this even when those people themselves are doing it and it just infuriates her so much that even if it means 
you know, having to be close to Draco Malfoy to saying that Draco can help me do this when no one else can. She's going to do that because this is something that's very important for her own healing. And I like the fact that she makes that decision and she and Harry can't look each other in the eye and Harry feels personally betrayed by that. Because this is, you know, someone that has tormented Harry, tormented Ron. This is someone that sued, you know, Ron. Don't forget that. You know, this is the person that wanted to put Ron into prison. This is the person that Harry feels is directly responsible for, you know, for, you know, the, the Granger's, you know, torture. And correct me if I'm wrong, but Ginny, I believe, is the only one back in Chapter 6 that could forgive Draco. Or I should say, Ginny, I believe... I I don't know if I would say forgive, but she can get past it. That was incorrect. Yeah, it wasn't forgive, but she was the only one who pitied Draco. Yeah. Whereas Hermione believed that that Draco was involved in the plot to torture her parents, but she didn't want to let it eat her up inside. And this is, you know, this is Ginny. And Ginny, on some level, thinks, I can help Draco. I can learn things from Draco. And you want to keep your enemies closer. So Ginny has the whole master plan. Ginny's got, you know, maybe she's looking, you know, at, you know, at the forest and is missing the trees. But Ginny, you know, is, is very, you know, forward-looking and, you know, far-looking. And Harry just knows, I want to punch Draco out right now. And I don't care what it costs. And... Yeah. Thank God we had the Quidditch game because, you know, things are not going well. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Told you. So, chapter 32, Black and Potter. We get to see a little bit more spillover from the last chapter when Harry's thinking about his new prank because he's so upset about what's going on. And she has to ride the same broom as Draco. She has to be up close and personal with him. And I think a lot of it is... He's jealous because he can't be that close to Ginny. Draco Malfoy can. And the only thing that's keeping him going is he knows that Ginny doesn't want to be there. And he knows that Ginny can take care of herself. And he knows that she's the smart one in this situation. He's the emotional basket case at the moment. And that's going to keep her safe and that everything will be all right. And I do like the fact that we, we, we stepped back from the precipice of the last chapter where, you know, you really expected Ginny and Harry to start taking shots at each other. And Ginny essentially says, look, you're Harry Potter. You're the boy who lived. You feel it is your obligation to save the world. You know, I am Ginny. I am a healer. This is my gift. What would happen if I didn't use this and people died as a result? I have to do this. This is important to me. You need to let me do this just as I need to let you do your stuff. Harry doesn't have a response to that. And I like the fact that Harry isn't like Ron or isn't like Charlie and isn't pig-headed and says, I don't care what you say. I'm not backing off from this. Harry recognizes the fact that, you know what? He's got a point. And I can't argue yeah. with that. And I don't have to like it. And I'm not going to be happy about it. And I don't think Ginny wants him to be happy about it. Ginny doesn't think he's going to be like, oh, great. Tell Draco I say hi. You know, Ginny gets the fact that this is going to be a tough situation, but he's going to bend over backwards. And he's going to do that for her. And I think that shows a lot of, um, you know, growth on Harry's part there. And the chapter, you know, basically takes two different tacks here. We have, you know, a little bit of a break. And on one hand, we have, you know, Harry and Sirius, you know, resuming Black and Potter 20 years later. And on the other hand, we have 
dinner at the Notch. And I thought I was done punching my computer screen. I thought I was done, you know, getting really irritated with some of these characters. But, you know, to A&Z's credit, they managed to, you know, pull me right back in again. And, you know, I need a new laptop now, but whatever. Um, yeah. <laughs> so let's start with Black and Potter. Harry is acknowledging that he has a massive chip on his shoulder when it comes to Draco Malfoy. Because Sirius suggests, you know, we, we could go mess with Malfoy tonight, and, you know, we shouldn't, but obviously you're pissed off about it. And Harry's like, if I go near him, I'll kill him. And and I love Sirius's response. It's between you and Ron, it's a wonder that he made it through school alive. Yeah. And, you know, you think about, I think about that sometimes when, you know, obviously in canon of until Half-Blood Prince, you saw Draco more as just an annoyance. He wasn't actually evil. He wasn't actually out for blood. He was just a bully, basically. And so, you know, but that line, it kind of makes me think, because maybe there's something that happened in the A and Z universe between, you know, Goblet of Fire and After the End, that maybe Draco did a lot more of it. Because that's the only way that I could think that Sirius would say something like that. And I'm surprised he made it through school alive. Well, he must have done something besides just, you know, taunted people. Because up until book four, really, that's all that he did. Well, you get the sense here he was really involved in the family business. And he was really getting into being a death eater. And um, not to foreshadow later, but we do get the sense that um, he may have been pretty busy at Hogwarts as well. And I, I get the sense that from Gobble of the Fire, knowing that, you know, Lucius was, a, you know, a confirmed present death either, which wasn't really a shocker, but it was now, you know, we, we have DNA evidence of it, that they took, ANZ took the belief that, you know, he is, you know, just taking over, you know, in his father's footsteps and following along and steadily, you know, getting deeper and deeper and deeper into that, into that realm. So... Sirius and Harry have taken off, and then we, we jump over to the Notch. Okay. And Hermione shows up, and, and she wants to talk to them, but the house is really quiet. And so she, she goes up to Ron's room, and she's sitting on the bed and, you know, just mulling things over in her mind. And then there's a knock on the door, and Hermione says, I'm in here. And then... You hear, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt anything. It's okay. And and Jenny and Hermione's like, no, wait, I'm by myself. It's okay. <laughs> and and Jenny walks in. She's like, sorry, I just assumed that uh, you were very quietly having sex going with my brother, on in yeah. there. <laughs> yeah. I was wrong about you. You're really not that loud after all. Right, exactly. And so the girls decide to make tea and wait for the guys, and you know, and Hermione or and and Jenny's. What is this? She's. They're making dinner, I think. Yep, they're making dinner, and which is new for Hermione. Because don't forget, yeah. Hermione can't make coffee. Hermione's not a good cook, and Ron's the expert in this field. Right. And we get to see Ginny really being the. You know, you get to see her empath powers because she takes the onion and she's like, no, it's, it's rotten. Don't worry about it. Don't even try. And, you know, all of a sudden, Hermione's thinking. What if what if Jenny could be the answer to the problem? And and Jenny's like, okay, I know what you're going to say, so just ask me already. Yeah, and Jenny's and, been and Jenny knows that Hermione's been thinking about this for a while, 
and Hermione doesn't want to impose, but it's one of those situations where if you had a best friend whose parents were in the situation and you had the ability to help, how could you not? And, you know, all of the logical reasons not to help, you know, you're so overextended with all of the other people you're trying to save in the world and you know, all the things you're trying to do. Even if it completely wipes you out, how could you not try? And, you know, and, and we get to see that Jenny likes working with the dragons because their energy is so huge. And while she likes that part of it, she hates working with Malfoy. And Hermione is finally realizing, oh my gosh, she can feel him. And, and she's like, you know what? It's okay because it's given me practice because, you know, hey, this might make it easier for me to be with Harry. And you see that, you know, Jenny's upset because she knows that he's jealous. And, you know, they just, they talk about stuff like that. And, you know, I will go and visit your parents and, and I will see if I can help. And, and then Ron, Ron shows up. And, My two favorite girls cooking me dinner. Just what a bloke wants to see after a long day at work. I think if I had been there when he said that, I would have punched him in the nose. <sighs> just... You and Jen are just such violent women. My God, Jen's kicking all these people. You're just punching them in the face. Well, I could bust out my trusty, rusty wooden spoon if that would make you feel better. Oh, that would be fantastic. Fantastic. But you know what? You get the sense that Ron was just joking about that, too. And you get the sense he was expecting to get pelted with potatoes when he said it. And I like the fact, a little bit of foreshadowing here, he was obviously somewhere for an hour and a half, won't say where, and there's the joke, you know, when you say, you know, you know, I've been busy, I was tied up late at the office, that means you're having an affair, which obviously he's not. And right. Hermione right. trusts him, even though she has no reason to, Hermione trusts him. And it doesn't take long between, you know, walking in the door and you're joking around with Hermione, you know, about how she's cooking now, even though she can't make coffee and all that. It doesn't take long between that and there being a full-blown fight with Jenny and it's very gradually you know collapsing the situation where you you get the sense you know these guys are going a little bit at it before you get the sense that this this is huge and Hermione you know very delicately backs herself out of the situation and Ron I just think is classic fanfic, you know, even canon, Gobble of the Fire, Common Sense, what's that, Ron? And he is completely accusing Ginny of, you know, trying to make Harry jealous and trying to, you know, do inappropriate things with Draco, and he is giving her no respect for anything that she is trying to accomplish, and he's treating her like such a child. And what I will say about this is that you know, in most scenes, when Ginny puts her hands in her hips and starts screaming, Ron does the, oh crap, what I just do, stand down move there and, you know, completely apologize. He doesn't. He stands his ground because he's right. And she stands her ground because she's right. And they just completely go at it. And, you know, and, and part of it is because, like I said, Ron, I said a couple of episodes ago, Ron and I are very firmly in the same camp that we believe that Draco is, is up to something. And he believes that it's Draco that's making the dragon sick, which, I mean, honestly, that's what I thought as well. Jenny can help, and that's all well and good, but she shouldn't have to do it in such close proximity to Draco. And that's why they're upset. And, and, and at first, he's just trying to tell her, because 
everyone is upset about this and nobody's saying anything. And I think at first he thinks he's doing her a favor because yeah. he's the one that's saying, you know, he's bitten the bullet and he's going to, you know, even her mind, he's thinking, the, yeah. yeah, he's going to go tickle the sleeping dragon, you know, <sighs> and <laughs> he's going to poke it with a stick. He's going to bite say, it. Yeah. Hey, Hey, guess what? Did you know you're pissing everybody off? <laughs> you know, <laughs> You're, and he he's actually becoming that. Hermione. Like, y- you have dirt on your nose. Did you know that? Like, you're being a complete fool. Were you aware? Like, it's just like, oh, God. Right, exactly. And, you know, and, and I understand why Jenny reacts the way she does. And and part of it, I think, is it's rubbing off from being around Draco all the time. She's very defensive about what she's doing. And I think that has a lot to do with her being in such close proximity to the Dementors and to Draco. They're not, those are not very healthy things to be around. And just to recap at this point too, she has made, you know, a certain amount of progress, um, you know, with her healing. She's identified the fact that it is the, Writhers, which are wearing down the dragons, you know that a lot of the you know energy is focused on their backs, where you know the dragon riders ride, and you know the effect that the Dementors is having on the riders is impacting the dragons, and their eyes being their weakest points are also vulnerable spots. So that reinforces that Ginny is making progress working with Draco, and you know she could solve the whole damn thing. It's not going to matter to Ron because Draco, you know, is a murderer in Ron's eyes. He is a torturer. He's all these different things and nothing is going to settle that. And Ginny eventually storms out, which is best because I'm sure she probably would have you know, put Ron in the body bag, you know, if that had gone on too much longer. And I like the fact that Hermione picked up a couple things from Cortona and you yeah. know, the quill is no longer her crutch. That's true. And she is able to calm Ron down and she is able to see the big picture, and she is able to acknowledge some things which she has not been able to, you know, conclude over the years. This is Harry's fight, and this is Ginny's fight, and we need to let them both go. We need to let Harry go, and we need to let Harry screw this up if he's going to, and we need to let Harry solve this issue his own way. If that means he's going to keep riding dragons and fighting Dementors, he's going to do that. If that means Ginny's going to ride, you know, on a broom with Draco Malfoy, of all people, she's going to do that too, and they're just going to work it out. And Ron's looking at her like she has three heads, like, you know, Harry can't, you know, solve anything. Harry can't do anything without us. You know, Harry is, you know, he's he's too ridiculous in his thought process to possibly, you know, live on his own, and that's exactly what they need to do. Because they can't call them. I just, I, I thought that was interesting. You know, you read all these novels about how, you know, we have to do it together and we're not alone. And you can only do it with your friends. And her suggestion is basically, let's you know, just cut Harry off and hope he makes it. And I think it's the right thing to say. This particular section ends with an interaction with, um, you know, they start talking about the Azkaban project because it's this huge project. And once again, we find the source of Hermione's strength. Ron is able to help her mm-hmm. see something that she couldn't see before. Yeah. And all of a sudden, she knows how to make the charms work. And she knows mm-hmm. that it's, it's going to work. Again, just like with the Expector Sacrificum spell, she needed Ron to 
come up with the crazy idea that she could finalize, you know, and, and you, you get to see again that he is her greatest strength when it comes to stuff like this. Yeah. And it's good because they get to play off of each other and she doesn't have to save the world all by herself. She, and it reinforces what we has, know about her. Yeah. She, she needs the raw materials, whether it be the, you know, the school books or the idea she needs something to work off of and she will, you know, take these you know, raw resources and she'll build something amazing from it. That's how she is best, you know, set up to deal with the world. She is not someone who can, you know, just sit in a room and, you know, hum and, you know, sing Kumbaya and think of the solution. And Ron, I love the point where Ron's laying in the bed. He points at his, you know, little noggin there and he's like, all the secrets of the world right in here. Because <laughs> I'm two for two. Yeah. I defeated the Dark Lord and I solved, you know, the Department of Corrections problem. And it's just, <laughs> okay. Yeah, go Ron. Right after the speech so, about we have to cut Harry off and let him do everything by himself, you know, let's collectively solve this problem. I just thought that was great. Exactly. And I, I thought it was a really cool moment, too. And just so you know, Jen would leave her husband for after the end, Ron, if he became available on the market. And I like the fact that she's like, well, I need to meditate. His response is, can I help? And yeah. he knows enough that, you know, you're not going to get anywhere that way. And he just kind of sits down next to her and says, what's your problem? Let's talk about it. I, I just thought that was a really cool moment you know, for Ron, for the character. Yeah, I mean, it, it, again, it's another example of these characters. These kids are grown up, and they're able to make these, you know, judgment calls and stuff that they might not have been able to do in their youth. And obviously, they don't do it all the time, because nobody does it all the time, but... Up. And this is one of the scenes, too, just before, you know, Ginny and Ron almost assassinated each other, that really showed you what this fic would have been like if you hadn't had all the angst and all the political and the, you know, in the in the real life, you know, situations coming up here. You know, these kids are, we're used to seeing these kids in the common room, you know, doing homework or in class or the Yule Ball. This is basically, you know, the Hogwarts kids all grown up. It's, you know, they're making dinner and they're setting the table and they have jobs and they're employed. This is what post Hogwarts is. And, you know, that they solve the problems together and they don't have McGonagall or Dumbledore or any of, you know, Sirius or Remus or any of these characters to fall back on. It's just them. And they're the, they're all they have. I just thought that was such a, it was just such a really cool scene that really shows you that, you know, we're not at Hogwarts anymore. Right. You can't, you can't count on the professors to come in and save the day, which I think is an unfortunate lesson that these characters had to learn a lot earlier than they should have. But oh, at some point, it's their own damn fault. <laughs> you know why? Well, yeah. Why didn't you go to McGonagall and tell her they were death eaters at the school? Well, we never, we never thought of going to the school administration before. Oh, okay. <laughs> what? Yeah, exactly. We never told anyone before. Why would we start now? But so we move from the scene with Harry or with. Ron and Hermione into the completion of the Black and Potter. <laughs> uh, the completion of their prank. And they have gone back to Privet Drive and they just happen to come upon it when the lovely Aunt Marge is visiting. Is she visiting and or did she leave her dogs? I think she left her dogs. Did she leave the dogs? She left her dogs. Oh, you won't keep Marge's dogs in the house for two weeks. Yeah, I got it. Okay. She left her dogs. So the dogs are there. And, and you know, Harry's first reaction when he smells the dogs is, uh, what? This, they might not live here anymore. But then... Vernon! They... And I love the way that they write this scene. You know, priv- number four, Privet Drive, is terminally predictable. Um, 
you know, just just the phrasing of it, you know, the automatic, you know, porch bulb lighted the brass number four on the outside wall, the flower beds, you know, Harry used to weed, you know, though I've used in January were still pruned mercilessly into tortured shapes. It's just like, this is like, you know, like this is against nature that number four privet drive be allowed to stand. It's just, you know, right. Compared to the burrow with the pigs and the gnomes and the, um, it, it's like, it's like, a, it's on a different planet almost. I just love it. And obviously, yeah. you know, they, now here's the thing you've been, you've been essentially, neglected to the point of abuse for 11 years by these people you know for six seven years after that you know there are the moments of dread in between moments of excitement and happiness and we just have to reference the fact that the moments of excitement and happiness he feels or you know in wartime when you're being killed and people are coming after you and people you know are dying and you know you're almost killed every week so the 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 jerseys you know just by default you know to be to make war and death and destruction look like the good times, the Dursleys are pretty repre- reprehensible. And what is the solution that Harry, you know, a wizard, you know, who's not being watched, who can really get in there and really mess with these people? He, I, I love the prank he's going to pull. They're going to put a computational hex on the house so that, you know, they won't be able to measure anything. Dudley will put too much food in his mouth. You know, the, it won't all fit. You know, Petunia won't be able to cook because she'll put too much of one ingredient, you know, into the recipe. Vernon won't be able to trim his mustache because he'll cut too much from one side. And you can picture, like, Vernon on day 38 trying to put, like, you know, toothpaste on the on the toothbrush and just completely, like, using half of the bottle and not being able to right. control himself. <laughs> And it's just, yeah. you, you like, you might as well have taken their firstborn or, you know, burn the street to the ground because this is the most awful thing you can do to these people. You're going to completely turn them into, the, you know, it's like Vernon's trying to mow the lawn and he overshoots and, like, you know, mows the paint off his car door. You can tell they're going to just completely <laughs> mess with these people for the next 20 years. And it's such a simple thing, oh, yeah. but it's such an awesome thing. I just love it. And I like the character moments they throw in, too. You know, they get into the house and they are conveniently talking about James and Lily and Sirius is so fiercely protective of his friend's memory because he really feels like he let them down that he you can tell he just wants to rip the invisibility cloak off and completely take out Vernon not that that wouldn't be a bad thing but obviously for the purposes of what they're doing they need to maintain anonymity although they make too much noise though they make too much noise and at one point, Sirius <laughs> pretends to be Vernon and says, yes, son, or something like that. And, and Dudley overhears it and, you know, comes back with his father and says, that wasn't you talking. And Vernon kind of looks around and looks at Dudley like, could it be Harry? Nah, it couldn't be Harry. And, you know, he references the fact that Dudley has a date that night. And, you know, just he, so they go back. To, Which in, that completely blows my mind because everything that's been ever said about Dudley Dursley makes me think that any woman would have to be completely off her nut to agree to go out with him. Oh, it's a betrothal. Like, they they haven't even met before. And it's great because when you meet her, she's a smaller version of Petunia. She's she's thin with the cranium. And you wonder if this is how, you know, Vernon and and Petunia got together, you know, other than the fact that, you know, they had a jailbird baby. But, um... 
I like the fact that you know Dudley needs just a little snack before his date. So they 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 go back into the kitchen and they shut the door, and you can tell that you know there's like a forty pound turkey you know cooking in the kitchen. That's his little snack. You know, because he has more chins than Harry could count, and he looks like a sumo wrestler in his suit. I love the descriptions, and he has absolutely no, you know, neck whatsoever. And Harry and Sirius are loud, and you hear the... I just love this image. You hear, uh, you know, the Dursleys laughing, you know, artificially loudly in the kitchen, because they know something's wrong, and they're just in such denial. They're like, if we laugh real loud, you won't hear the strange noises in the other room, which clearly aren't there. Right, of course. Of course. Of course they're not. And so, you know, Harry or Harry sends Sirius to hex the golf mat, and then, you know, he's going to go upstairs and do the toilets, and and that's when, you know, we find out about the date with Janice, Miss Janice, mm-hmm. and... Lovely girl. Um, they sneak into the car. Because they get to go to a movie. And, yes, they're going to go see... It was a Shakespeare in Love. Yeah, because the Matrix wasn't out yet. I have a question. In fanfics, is it required that one of the characters talk about Star Wars at all times? I really think it is. Okay. I mean, it's like that drinking game with Family Guy where every time they make a Star Wars reference, you got to take a shot. Yeah. You know, it's the, it's the same concept, I'm pretty sure. Because yeah. they just they have to have a Star Wars reference in it. Because, because honestly, Star Wars is the closest thing that most muggles think of when it comes to magic. So, True. obviously, you think any muggle-born kid is going to... You know, when they learn about levitation and magic, they're going to think, use the force, Luke, you know, or something similar to that, because that's the closest thing that they know, and that's their only experience with it, so. But yes, I do agree that it seems to be mandatory for all fans think that you have to make a Star Wars reference at some point, but... So they're going to go to the cinema and, and watch the movie, and they, they're they going to talk in his ear, and they're going to whisper things to him. Great continuity. It's the spell that Harry learned to keep in touch the with the other dragon yeah. riders, yeah. They're like, oh, Dudley, oh, Dudley. <laughs> lower, Dudley, lower, right there, right there. And Dudley's <laughs> unfortunately molesting the poor girl in the front row. And I love how she's, yeah. like, quietly resigned <laughs> to it at first. Like, you know, her father said, you will marry the, the you know, the, 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 the Dursley boy. The Dursley boy. And Yeah, and then, you know, he says, sometimes I like to dress up like a man. <laughs> <laughs> and they're they're getting all of her clothes unraveled, and I wish someone would do that to me. <laughs> and I love how Harry's getting really into the movie, and he keeps forgetting what he's supposed to be doing. Yeah, well, because there's a naked woman on screen, and Harry's an 18 year old boy. Well, I could have something. I mean, to too, yeah. and, and the last time he touched a girl, she collapsed and had to be resuscitated. So I can see, you know, the the the, the problem. Right, exactly. And so then. Harry starts talking in his own voice. And Janice is like, did you call me Harry? Yes, Janice, I'm very sorry, and I will never do it again. And it just, it absolutely cracks me up, this interaction. Now Janice thinks Dudley's crazy, and Harry and Sirius are just having a complete, a complete laugh out of this whole thing. And Harry's, you know, I feel sorry for Janice. And Sirius is like, we did her a favor, it's okay favorite line in the whole thing though pretty much after you know because Dudley can hear 
you know, Harry in his ear. He thinks everyone else can hear Harry in his ear. So he thinks everyone else is already... So he's screaming, you know, back at this voice in his head. So he looks like the complete screwball. Everyone's telling him to shut up, and he has his arms up in the air, and, you know, Janice is like, okay, good. Maybe if he just keeps going crazy, he'll leave, and I can watch the movie in peace. And I love the line where, you know... Dudley is making a complete ass out of himself and Harry heard something fall to the floor beside him, sniggering, and he was fairly certain it was serious. Right. <laughs> he can't be buggered to look and see what it was, so we're just going to assume that it's serious. Yeah, we're gonna, it seemed quite hefty. And I, and I just love, you know, the so and I love the way it ends. You know, Harry got back at the Dursleys by making sure that he can't have their perfectly manicured little life. And he got back at Dudley because he will never return to Privet Drive. That's it. And it's in the narration. That's fact. He, he will never go back there, but Dudley doesn't know that. And Dudley will always be looking over his shoulder the rest of his life. Oh yeah. And what better way to, just... to torture someone than to just, you know, be dumb with them, yeah. but make them think that you may return someday and keep them on edge. Oh yeah, less it's is better. Perfect, and especially for people like the Dursleys who yeah. cling to their order. You have this threat of the unknown popping up whenever. In our next Black and Pother, tea leaves with Trelawney with the Grim showing up. Oh, of course, which would just, I mean, be so fabulous to see. I can't wait. <laughs> Sequel. Yes, exactly. And that's where we're going to end uh, tonight's podcast. We'd like to thank everyone for listening. We would like to thank uh, Harry and the Pothers, uh, Leela Starsky, Danielle, uh, Jen, all of our guest hosts who have jumped in and helped us this week, including Lady Chi, who you know is sick with mono and is still somehow managing to podcast. And you know we gave her some extra points, you know, <laughs> for Ravenclaw House for that. Oh, and for everyone, if you're listening to this and you think we're remotely interesting, join the forums, polyrficweekly.com. Click on forums, join up. We're there all the time. We're very fun people. We're very enjoyable. You can get to know us a little bit better. And uh, you can get sorted into your houses over there. Uh, right now, I think Ravenclaw... Renna, you're in Ravenclaw. Ravenclaw's kicking some butt right Hi, now, I believe. Ravenclaw. I believe you're kicking some butt I over there well, right we now. Well, we are. We always kick butt, Well, this is also because you can see us all naked in our common rooms, too, so that's probably... Helping you there. Right. That's probably a problem. <laughs> All right. So keep checking in, and we'll see you again next week. All right. Goodbye, everybody. If you've heard anything in this episode that you would like to comment on or would like to contribute to the show, you can email any of our staff at their names at potherfickweekly.com, or you can email staff at potherfickweekly.com. If you would like to send in a voicemail message, you can either call 781 781- Three five two zero six four three, and you can leave a voicemail up to two minutes in length, or you can email us an audio file to our email address, and we can play that on the show. You can also download a program called the Gizmo Project, and you can uh, contact us that way through your computer. For more information, visit Weekly dot com.